0: you know there's there's certainly an economic aspect to it there's certainly an environmental aspect to it there's there's a disruptive aspect to it uh, there's there's a whole bunch of things that that make it make sense for us welcome to flying bc a podcast about the people planes and aviation adventures in british columbia and canada with your host warwick patterson
1: Welcome to episode 10 of Flying British Columbia. As an aspiring floatplane pilot and a fan of technology and business, today's guest is someone I've been angling to talk to since this project started. I sat down recently with Greg McDougall, founder and CEO of Harbor Air, mainly to discuss the electric beaver project that first took to the air almost a year ago and the challenges and opportunities ahead. But first, we look back on the journey through his rough and tumble bush flying years and the start of Harbor Air nearly 40 years ago with just two beavers. The company now flies over 40 aircraft and transports nearly a half million passengers a year, making them an iconic sight on the coast of British Columbia. If you're a fan of the show, please leave a review on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen and share it with your friends on social media. The audience is growing every episode and your shares really help. So strap on your life jacket, and let's dive into the world of float planes with Greg McDougall. All right, can you tell us a little bit how you got into aviation? You told me a little story the other day of how you used to be at the lake and you'd see float planes. And- yeah,
0: so um, I spent all my summers at a, at a um, sort of remote cabin up the coast that my family uh, used as a summer you know, summer cabin. And, um, although we went in by, you know, it was a, it's actually an island on a lake on an island in the ocean. So, um, you know, quite sort of remote for logistically and, um, although close to the Sunshine Coast. So, um, so the flow planes used to come in and out and I remember being a little kid there and, and, uh, you know, watching these planes coming in and out and, and kind of got, I guess, you know, maybe it's almost a genetic thing. You, you kind of. Attracted to it or you're not and I was and um, one of the pilots used to come in and out took me for a ride I think I was about six years old and then it was kind of like set in my mind as to what I wanted to do and uh, and I and I think in my mind at that time you know well, not maybe at that time but sort of growing up it was like a mixture of okay it's a lifestyle plus a profession plus a whatever and but I just knew that you know that flying um, particularly seaplanes, planes, blow planes was was what I wanted to do. So, as soon as I got out of um, out of high school, uh, we were lived in California. Uh, dual citizenship. My parents were both Canadian. They were working down there. And as soon as I got out of uh, out of high school, I just uh, went to Pitt Meadows, took my uh, flight training, and you know just worked at it every day, kind of thing. And I think I probably had it done in, to commercial in maybe two and a half months, something like that. And luckily, well, um, interestingly, I, I met a guy, well, he, he actually gave me my seaplane endorsement, my floatplane endorsement. And in those days, it was like the five-hour floatplane endorsement. And, you know, you're kind of somewhat good to go. Um, but uh, we struck up a bit of a relationship. And, and so he decided that I that I should, he was like starting his sort of float floatplane training business and charter business. And he decided that I was, you know, good enough to kind of um, train or mentor or whatever into a position where I could actually do something. So my first job was actually giving um, uh, seaplane ratings at, uh, you know, I had to get 50 hours on type to be able to do that. So I just went out and flew around for 50 hours. And, um, and then I started giving giving seaplane ratings. And if I think back about that now, it's, you know, the blind leading the blind. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but anyways, then, then I started flying charters up and down the coast. And uh, a Cessna 180, I think, was the first plane I flew that was of any sort of commercial sort of size. And, um, yeah, it was pretty interesting times because in those days it still was very much the Wild West. Uh, you know, you, you, um, you flew basically in terrible weather with overloaded airplanes, and the good pilot was the guy that got you there on the day that nobody else would. Uh, you know, the whole culture was just completely bad, uh, safety wise. And, um, uh, then I went up to Fort Simpson and got my, you know, another job up there working at a Fort Simpson in the Northwest Territories and continued on with that whole kind of bush pilot, you know, thing. It's amazing really looking back that I survived it. I mean, the amount of stuff that we did that was really sketchy. Um, and, and it was, you know, I remember, I remember saying to, um, to my boss one day, uh, there that um, uh, the weather was pretty dicey and, and I had to do a medevac over to, uh, to Yellowknife from Fort Simpson, which was a fairly long flight across the tundra and, and, you know, um, and, and the weather was really low. And I said, you know, as a very inexperienced pilot, I said, well, it's kind of beyond my comfort zone. And he said, well, if, if you don't do the trip, I have to do it. And if I do the trip, I don't need you. And you'll be on the next plane back to Vancouver. So when you think about that safety culture and, and how that was prevalent through pretty much the entire industry at that time, um, and, and you really, I mean, that's reverse safety culture, that's basically putting, um, you know, pilots in a position where, where they either have to go out and do things that they're comfortable with uh, to maintain their job uh, or, you know, economic, um, issues or whatever. Um, so, so really, you know, the fact that, that, that in those days, the, the business was fairly dangerous. I mean, there was, there was a lot of accidents that happened, uh, from, you know, people just pushing stuff and relying on luck and eventually your your luck will, you know, probably run out. Um, so, when we started the business when i started the business i think i came into it kind of almost with that same bush pilot mentality and uh and the result of that was that we did have some accidents and um and i i remembered that uh there was one accident in particular that we had that was really quite devastating and there was you know loss of life and everything else and i went well there has to be a better way than this like you know if you analyze what um what uh, uh happened there and in terms of the applied pressure this was out of prince rupert all the all the accidents we had were basically in the in the north north coast um or the the accidents that we did have um and uh and and if you if you analyze you know well could we have done things better to make sure that this didn't happen and put this pilot in a position where where he felt he had to, you know, sort of go and try and complete a mission that was probably in conditions that weren't, you know, uh, certainly um, ideal, uh, to put it mildly, and um, and and the answer was clearly, you know, um, that that we could have done things a lot differently, and and so I came to this kind of a, you know, epiphany or whatever it is that we had to take safety culture and turn it completely 180 degrees from where it was to, you know, uh, to, to sort of use a, a, bit of a, uh, analogy or euphemism, whatever, uh, you know, the pilots in the old days at, at, in the bar at night, would get patted on the back for going out and taking chances. And almost overnight we had to change it to, um, not only will you not get patted on the back for taking chances, you'll get fired. And, and that was a, you know, very dramatic shift in, in, in the whole you know, thinking of how you would go out and conduct this business because everybody was competing against one another and, and, you know, doing things to try and, and get a one up on the other guy and and charging not enough money. And, you know, there was everything just crazy. And so we just said, well, we're not doing that anymore. And, um, and amazingly enough, (laughs) not surprisingly, the accident stopped. I mean, touch wood. Um, and, and, uh, and customers started gravitating towards us that you know were more of the government-oriented customers, et cetera. And, and I think the, the the vision in those days was for me, and you know, I don't know if I consciously sort of um, uh, thought about it, but it was to take a very unsophisticated uh, you know product or or industry and make it sophisticated enough that people felt comfortable using it as a as a regular sort of you know. Um, uh, transportation conveyance. And, uh, and, you know, I guess for a fast forward to today, mission accomplished. I mean, people use full planes on the coast as, 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 as they would a ferry or a, or, or a bus or a taxi or a, you know, whatever. And it's just another method of transportation and people put their kids on it. They, you know, they use it for all, all walks of life. And for me, that's, that's, you know, a very satisfying thing to see that people have that confidence in, in the product and, and in the, you know, in the business we've created, uh, and, and they should, because, you know, it is safe. We've made it safe and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, it's, um, it's now something that people can certainly trust.
1: Yeah. The Harbor air float planes are kind of a staple of people who live around here. It's like, oh yeah, it's another float plane. Yeah. So for those who don't live around here, you started what was it, mid '80s, something like that, and then '82, yeah, yeah. And you started with one plane, or how? how did you- uh, yeah, so we
0: had like what what happened, of course. If, you, if you, for those people that can think back to '82 um, about you know uh, what was going on then, uh, the economy took a took a huge dive, and um, and I was working for a land development company at the time that had a couple of airplanes, King Air and a Beaver, and basically flew those for the, uh, executives of the land development company. And most of my flying was flying people around to go fishing and partying and having a good time, um, back and forth to Reno and, and Vegas and whatever. Um, and, and then all of a sudden boom overnight and was, wasn't equivalent to what happened with COVID recently, but it was, it was pretty devastating. The interest rates shot up, everything kind of collapsed and, you know, the party was over for those guys that didn't have, uh, a lot of depth and the guy that I was working for certainly didn't, they were, they were kind of just, you know, running on, on, uh, on borrowed money and whatever. Um, so overnight they couldn't afford their airplanes anymore. And I basically said to them, they had they actually had a dock down in Vancouver Harbor, uh, attached to a barge down there It was their office barge and there was a dock there. So there was a dock, there was a, you know, we're right in the heart. Actually it's right where the convention center is now, ironically. Um, and so this, this barge was there, the dock was there, there was fuel, there was everything. And I said, well, you know, I I know he can't afford me anymore, so I'll, I'll lease your plane and, um, and, uh, and your dock and, you know, and pay something for that and, you know, relieve you of the burden of of my salary and I'll go and start a, a seaplane airline. So there was another guy actually, uh, who was in the sort of the same position working for a logging company and he had a beaver. So, um, so I took the beaver that they had and he, t- he brought another beaver and, and so two beavers and we, and we started, we started Harbor air. Um, and he, I mean, this is a lot of sort of interest, well, it's, it's detailed, but uh, in those days there was perceived base protection everywhere. So you couldn't actually, just go somewhere uh, freely and and start, you know, cause you had an AOC and uh, operating certificate, you couldn't just go and, and run out of Vancouver Harbor. You had to have theoretically a license to actually operate from there. And so our license was based out in in uh, the Port Kells, which is right across from Pitt Meadows. Cause that's where the logging company was that my partner was uh, working from. And he was the one that had obtained this license. Uh, but lo and behold, we discovered by examining the regulations that the definition of a base was within 25 miles of the post office of the of the base that you you know your your geographical location, and of course Vancouver Harbour fell just within that 25 mile radius, and so we positioned there, and of course West Coast Air it was there and, and Air West and whatever, and they they you know. They had a panic attack as if somebody was coming in and just like the gypsy sort of thing and 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 operating. So they tried to get us shut down and 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 they 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 were somewhat successful in harassing us because the RCMP were kind of the people that were supposed to enforce all this and they didn't understand the regulations. But fortunately, we had a consultant that was you know very up on exactly you know what this loophole was and and so you know. We, we set precedent with that and people discovered that base protection actually didn't exist more than, well, it existed beyond 20, 25 miles of the, of the, of the post office. So, um, so early days, very difficult, uh, you know, operating a couple of airplanes, doing everything, um, you know, dispatching ourselves and, and, you know, doing the full deal and, and running in under those old sort of safety, you know, um, uh, the old safety culture, which was uh, challenging for sure.
1: So now, almost forty years later, um, where, where does Harbor Air stand now? You've got well a lot of planes. And-
0: yeah, so we've got you know forty some odd aircraft, and um, you know pre-COVID, we we were uh, you know running with uh, close to eighty, well eighty pilots. Um, uh, carrying around 400 and 450,000 people a year. Uh, so, you know, a big business and it kind of, it kind of grew very organically. Um, there was, you know, sort of mileposts along the way in terms of, of, uh, of, uh, what drove the business. I mean, and, and, you know, our first customers were all pretty much resource-based. So it was all, you know, uh, logging, uh, forest industry involved mostly. And then, very little tourism in the province at that time, and then, um, and then you know the uh, world's uh, exposition, 1986, I, think, I believe it was, kind of turned on the whole, um, you know, here's tourism all of a sudden, and uh, and then the fishing camps started opening up, so there was you know fishing resorts, and and we we sort of tapped into that business, uh, so there was there was always this sort of ebb and flow, and as as the as the resource based business sort of trickled off because forest industry started. You know, getting much more kind of um, condensed, and and uh, and so we weren't flying into the logging camps as much because the camps became contract, and the you know because the the big sort of camps didn't work anymore so much. Um, then then it was all about flying log buyers around to look at logs and and you know specialty uh, sort of um, uh, export of logs and 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 flying people around that were looking at the floating logs in different areas. So we specialized in that. And that kind of tapered off the, the sports fishing business came along. So summer was like, you know, the big deal and, and we'd have to cram it all into the summer and then winter we would basically be, you know, trying to conserve the cash we'd made in the summer and sometimes not so well. Um, so, uh, so it was, you know, really seasonal, very difficult business. Um, then we, I guess the, 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 sort of the major, you know, sort of big shift was when we bought, um, uh, Jimmy Patterson had basically um, gone out and, and wanted to create um, Air BC and, and bought all of these licenses on the coast. Um, and you know, he bought West Coast Air. He bought all he bought Air BC or Air West. He bought you know all these different licenses and wanted to create a regional airline. And um, uh, and he and he did that. And and then discovered that you know sort of the seaplane end of it, the floatplane end of it, really wasn't um, conducive to what what they were about. They were about more about, you know, regional carrier, uh, flying, you know, turboprop aircraft. And, uh, so really the float planes didn't fit into the whole picture. So, uh, sort of softly, they put all the, all the, the float plane assets on the market, there was about nine aircraft. There was, uh, the base on the river at, at YVR, which was basically ACO trailers at that time, the place uh, now that occupied by the flying beaver that we, uh, uh bar and restaurant, which is our, our terminal, which, which was built um, you know, uh, by us, um, and and so the hangar, the sort of legacy hangar at the airport, uh, and and uh, and the um, the base on the river at the airport, and then rights to use the dock downtown, which was a big deal because the dock that we originally used had all been sort of swept away, and or was going to be, and uh, for the for the for future development of the um, of the convention center, which took years before they actually did anything, but in, in any event, we couldn't, we couldn't stay in that spot, but we did have access to the, um, to the RBC dock downtown, as long as we didn't compete with them. So we were able to run charters out of there and Gulf Island schedule, I think, but nothing else. So, um, so anyways, we bought these aircraft. It was, um, a bunch of beavers, I think, and, and maybe a couple of single otter pistons. And, um, and that kind of turned us all of a sudden into this much larger carrier. Um, but when I think about, you know, the, sort of the the underpinnings of what we were operating all that equipment with, I mean, we didn't really have a lot of management structure and, uh, and it was pretty, it was, you know, pretty crazy times. Um, cash was a big, big issue. Uh, And, you know, uh, getting support from banks and and all that was really difficult. So there was a lot of scraping and scrounging and, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul and, you know, trying to keep the airplanes airworthy and, you know, all of that. So uh, that, that, that was a difficult, difficult thing. But, um, but anyways, I mean, the evolution was that, that as tourism came along, we grew with it, uh, as, um, and then finally, um, uh, Air BC, uh, sold, uh, their, um, their harbour to harbour service to west coast air and the new sort of west coast air and, um, and, and the non-competition agreement did not survive that. So, uh, so we were able to obtain some land, um, right next to the existing air BC dock or west coast air dock at that time. And, and then start up our own operation. Um, with uh, Harbor to Harbor Service, and we teamed up with Ken Boric Air, which which was uh, you know the largest operator of Twin Otters at that time, and they were able to supply us with Twin Otters, which you know on a seasonal basis, even which which was a real uh, key um, sort of you know uh, uh, key to growth and success for the company. Um, and so yeah, when I mean, we competed with with West Coast Air, and of course eventually we bought West Coast Air. And then you know, went through a whole series of 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 different iterations of temporary facilities in the harbor, and then wound up in the convention center. And that's, of course, a whole other story. Um, But um, uh, yeah, it's it's been an interesting evolution, and um, and all the while, though, I think uh, um, it's all been about um, trying to make the business more sophisticated. And although we're using you know older legacy aircraft, it's about trying to uh, be very progressive and innovative about how we use them, and how the systems around them work, and you know not only safety systems but um, but but all of all of that. So you know you kind of fast forward to today in terms of of of, of the development of the um, electric uh, aircraft and all of that. That's that's a nat- It seems kind of almost counterintuitive when when we're running aircraft that are you know 50 60 years old some of them um, but um, really in a way it's it's not I mean we were you know we were sort of the first to use the, the converted um, uh, uh, turbine water, uh successfully uh, and that was you know basically a retrofit and so you know looking at electric electrification is 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 another retrofit And so it's natural that we would look at it, Um, but there's a whole, you know, there's, there's certainly an economic aspect to it. There's certainly um, environmental aspect to it. There's, 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 um, there's a disruptive aspect to it. Uh, There's, there's a whole bunch of things that, that make it make sense for us. And, um, and, and, you know, not the least of which is the fact that, that Harbor Air enjoys a very um well maybe enjoys is not the right word but is in a unique position because of its stage lengths uh being so short and also its energy use is is quite low uh because of single engine um you know fairly efficient uh turbine aircraft um but uh um you know if, if there's there's i think we're a fairly long ways off from the electrification of you know major um, you know, transatlantic flights or anything else because the energy density required to do that is, is, is with current technology that's even kind of in the pipeline, except for maybe the, um, uh, hydrogen fuel cells, uh, is pretty far off. Um, but there are, you know, there is huge evolution going on in all of that as we speak. And, um, the more I've been involved with it, the more, uh, I realize that, um, that it's inevitable uh, that that aviation will electrify over a period of time uh, as the technology evolves, and um, and you know and 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 we're really excited to be kind of at the leading edge of of the sort of pioneering of the regulation side of it and getting it accepted by uh, not only Transport Canada but the FAA and um, and and be uh basically evolving the regulatory structure around how it's going to work because um that uh you know it it doesn't matter really what what you know whether your batteries go for you know two hours or one hour or half an hour the the fact of the battery is you still have to prove the technology and you have to prove that it's as safe or safer than what we're currently using so that's that's kind of the trick the the whole
1: the whole ecosystem around it's probably different you need Technicians who are trained in it and exactly, systems yeah. set up around it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, so. and at the same time, you know, recognizing that the urban air mobility movement, which is, is you know, vertical takeoff and landing, electrified aircraft, and, you know, like everybody's so there's a whole bunch of people working on that as well. So uh, you've got Uber, you know, basically, you know, funding projects. You've got, um, uh, you know, Boeing's involved and Rolls-Royce is involved and GE is involved and, you know, major, major companies um that are that are developing this technology and um interesting that you know pratt and whitney's kind of late to the game they're looking now at a at a um a hybrid uh type of, uh, of system um but um uh but the amount of money and and exp, you know and, and brain power being poured into this new technology of of electrifying flight is just staggering i mean people just aren't even aware really of how most people of how how much effort is being you know both intellectually and and financially is being poured into this so it's it's kind of like you know be a part of it or stand here and and watch it and i'm not planning on standing here and watching it right
1: so that was kind of my where i was going to go with that like how it, we're now about a year since your first flight in the Electric Beaver. How many years in development before that were you working on it? and what, what instigated that?
0: So, um, I, I guess it was kind of a natural progression in a way, um, and I guess there's several factors. I mean, one is that we went carbon neutral about 13, 14 years ago, and i um, proud to say today i think we're the only carbon neutral, as far as we can see we're the only carbon neutral fully carbon neutral air, airline in the world and and again it's back to the short stage lengths the fact that we can do it economically i mean if you offset uh your carbon burn with you know um with projects and carbon credits and all of that on on uh, transatlantic aircraft well you're adding probably hundreds of dollars to each ticket with us it's like you know, three or four dollars. So it's a so it's a mandatory part of our ticket. It's actually built into every ticket, and then we offset our our corporate burn as well. Um, and so, uh, so you know, we were able to do that early, and uh, and and you know, it was not only sort of a um, uh, sort of a, uh, a core value of the company to be able to, to to do that and and to take the initiative to do it. Um, but it also, you know, certainly benefited us in a commercial way in terms of, of people saying, well, here's somebody actually doing something. Um, yeah, it's not perfect because you're not, you know, uh, eliminating the, 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 the carbon burn, but you are offsetting it with real projects that actually do demonstrably take that carbon out of the atmosphere. And that was all backed up by by uh, sustainability professors at UBC and, and, and all the rest of it. So, um, so, uh, so we were, you know, uh, very successful with that program and proud of it. And uh, then I became sort of, you know, interested in in electrical power. I guess, uh, well, for one thing, I, you know, flying like RC electric aircraft and the power to weight ratio is unbelievable. And um, uh, and not that you know it scales completely like that, but um, uh, but then I I was one of the first Tesla owners in, in <laughs> Vancouver. I uh, was, you know, just amazed with the the sophistication of that technology and how, you know, how it, how it worked right off the bat and how it was going to work and and could certainly see the future of 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 the electrification of transportation in general and and cars and AI and, you know, everything else that I I just became kind of a student of it. And um, and so, you know, I started thinking about how how would we you know, how can we participate in the evolution of it? And, um, and, you know, we started sort of tinkering with the idea and we talked to a few people that, you know, had electrified different, um, uh, buses and different, you know, things. And there was a guy in Victoria that we talked to, uh, who was electrifying some buses and he, he was in he was also an aviation buff. So he kind of said, look, I've already done the math on this. It works, like, you know, I can, I can show you how it works. So uh, so we were looking at that and I actually, I think I had him prepare a uh, report um, on, you know, sort of the feasibility of it. And we were kind of scratching our heads because it looked like it was going to be a huge investment. And, you know, to kind of take it from this very rudimentary, uh, well, there's a motor over there and there's some batteries, but, you know, uh, to, to take it through certification and all that. So we we're just trying to scratch in our heads, trying to figure out how to do that. And in walked um, uh, Magniex, who's the company that produces the motors for exclusively for aviation. And um, we had had some talks with Siemens and, and some you know some other um, organizations that, that had developed motors for aviation, but they were kind of on to bigger and better things. Um, but Magniex walked in and said, "Look, you know, we we, we want to be the first uh, commercial um, you know uh, propulsion system." Uh, or propulsion system for a commercial aircraft and you guys have stated you know in, in whatever press or wherever it was that we wanted to be the first uh you know commercial airline in the world to operate electric aircraft so our interests are aligned and you know we're prepared to to you know financially back this to to be able to do it and I kind of went okay. (laughs) Uh, I remember we had a coffee in our our office and, and in 15 minutes we were shaking hands and saying, okay, let's do it. We don't know how we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And, um, and so away we went and they, they sent up a team and I had, you know, so sort of our team and their team. And and it was a really interesting process to watch because you kind of had the geeks and then you had the, our, you know, wrench twisters and, and, and they kind of Integrated into this unit of figuring out how to do this, and uh, and basically it took about from sort of you know that having that coffee in the office to actually flying the plane. I think it was about nine months, something like oh that. wow, that quickly, yeah, yeah, nine ten months maybe. Um, so very quick when it comes to you know sort of anything to do with aerospace, and um, uh, and and we you know I was I was. I remember how much sort of interest there was, you know, right off the bat when we started talking about it, and then when we started saying, "Okay, we're actually going to do it," and how much attention we were getting over it, and how people kind of twigged to this and they kind of went, "Wow, this is a pretty big deal." And for me, it, it actually kind of caught me by surprise at how many people kind of internationally even started paying attention to this. And um, of course, it all culminated with the actual flight, which I did in the in the Beaver, like a. Electric Beaver, uh, I think it was December 8th or something, I can't remember. But um, but uh, uh, at that point, we really did have quite a whipped up, quite a frenzy of interest and uh, there was a lot of pressure for that flight. I bet. Because it was kind of like you know, bit of <laughs> you a you lim-
1: always want to make the first flight a secret. Yeah, no well, we kind of did actually. <laughs> yeah.
0: So we did actually take the plane out in sort of the the break of dawn. Um, I think a few days before we actually did the the, the flight, um, although we couldn't actually fly it, we we could kind of do a, a couple of test liftoffs and kind of set back down again and straight ahead kind of thing. Transport. We had to do, do all of this under transport permit
1: course. Yeah. the fact that you got that done in nine months is pretty impressive exactly yeah (laughs) there was
0: there was a real um alignment
1: of uh of effort
0: from the regulatory side and and everybody you know sort of political side whatever realizing that this was something important and so the way really did get quite paved in terms of you know i mean there there was there was still lots of scrutiny over everything but it was at least doable and uh, because a lot of people, you know, pulled the cor- the cart in the same direction, and there wasn't kind of you know crazy kind of well, you got to go off and do three months of you know research on this particular point or whatever. Um, so so yeah, there was a there was a big um, uh, you know um, amount of interest, and and what I actually did the flight, and there were all these people on the banks of the river, and you know it was really quite astonishing. Um, and we did the you know big press conference afterwards and then you know got interviewed by a lot of international press and and you know it 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 was um it, it was a significant moment i mean basically what 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 we proved was that we could uh you know ostensibly fly a commercial aircraft uh electrically and 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 the numbers you know if, if not worked on that. So that, that prototype actually took off at gross weight with just me in it because the batteries were so heavy. Um, but that's, that's kind of, you know, the, the, the reason the batteries were so heavy is because they were of um, sort of aerospace quality, which means that there was a lot of safety built into them and they were used on space stations and, and whatever. And they were old technology, basically. Uh, so, so they were very heavy. Uh, but still, you know, that they were the safest sort of uh, avenue to, 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 to use. Um, and, and now today, um, we've um, just made a uh, uh, the deal with a battery supplier that's got uh, batteries that are of aviation quality that are double the density, uh, uh, energy density. It's all about this watt hours per kilogram thing is the scale they use. Uh, they're double the watt hours per kilogram uh, at the cellular level. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, that, 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 that's a game changer for, for certainly for our, you know, it takes our prototype, which is heavy and, and kind of just getting through the regulatory side to if, if we were, you know, today, given the, the regulatory, uh, blessing, we could actually fly that aircraft with paying passengers and do it economically, uh, although at a limited, you know, I mean, it wouldn't be taking them for an hour flight, it would be taking them for a half an hour flight. Um, and and so um so that's so that's a big change already in the time that we've been, you know, kind of doing this. And that and that was kind of one of the things we realized early was there was so much evolution happening um, from from the technical side of this that during the regulatory side being completed, that when we get to that finish line, it's gonna be a whole different game in terms of the Propulsion system, Well, the motors would probably be very much the same because they're 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 actually their technology, the brushless motor, and and uh, they're they're um, they're quite simple, and and they, they you know the, the power they produce is astonishing, um, and the simplicity of the motor is is amazing. I mean, compared to a uh, to a uh, Pratt and Whitney opt six, uh, which you know um, runs at eight hundred degrees Celsius. Uh, with all these moving parts and coatings and everything else. And they're very expensive and you've got this simple motor, which basically is a couple of bearings and some windings and, and, and magnets. And,
1: you know, and, yeah, I was thinking about that the other day, the, the original engine in the Beaver, the Wasp is, or Wasp Junior or whatever yeah. it is, was like designed in the twenties Yeah, and now you're putting an electric motor on this thing hundred years later. Yeah. It's
0: pretty incredible. Yeah. No, no, it is. And, um, uh, and, and, and really that, that kind of gets into this whole economic side of it, which is not only you're not burning, you know, um, uh, uh, carbon combustion fuel. Um, but, but you're, you're also not having to subject the motor you're running to all this heat and, and wear and tear. And, and so, you know, notionally, um, you know, it. it's, X is kind of like, again, they're, you know, they're in the prototype stage to a certain, um, uh, degree, but they're, they're thinking, you know, currently that sort of notionally the, the time life of, of these motors is, is kind of like, well, they picked a 10,000 hour, um, time life because, because it, it could be 20,000, but they had to pick something, um, and, and so they picked 10,000 and, 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 uh, and they, they're very confident. It's not less than that.
1: Yeah. Uh, They'll you know, outlast the airframes. Yeah,
0: yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you think about the economics of that, that's a game changer. I mean, you, you know, we, we would over that 10,000 hours, invest literally millions of dollars in a PT six to keep it going, not only initial purchase, but whatever. So, uh, plus the fact that you're burning all that fuel. So, um, so that's, that's economically, uh, a, a a big,
1: you know, a big difference. So take us through that day, the, the day you flew it for the first time, um, to just fly like a beaver, uh,
0: in a way. Um, so, you know, I've got about 8,000 hours in a piston beaver. Um, more recently I'm flying turbo beaver, which is a much uh, better experience. Um, but, um, uh the piston beaver although it's an amazing aircraft um if you you know and and, and the way it was designed i mean in terms of its uh sort of uh, utility and how it was actually built it's an aircraft that you know, the, the little things that people don't know about the 45 gallon drum is fits exactly through the door right and, and the floor is you know hardened floor and seats pop in and out easily and it was it was actually built as a, you know, uh, I think it was a sort of revolutionary that the Havilland went around and actually asked people what they wanted to see in an aircraft and the, the operators that were flying these, you know, Founds and all these other weird air- aircraft. Um, and, uh, and and so it was purpose built. And uh, and it's very balanced controls. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's stole performance, all of those things. But if you have one big fault with the, with a piston beaver, is the fact that it's not very aerodynamic, it's not super slippery. Uh, and, and it's also, because you've got know, a big round engine sticking out the front, um, not very aerodynamic, and it's power to weight uh, when it's loaded. Um, and then the weight distribution is, is an issue because uh, although the airframe is capable of supporting a lot of weight, it doesn't do it in a very efficient way. It flies like a doorstop. Um, so uh, right away, when you put the electric motor on it, you now have you know closer to what we have on the on the Turbo Beaver, or the um, or the or the Turbo Otter. It's a you know a much more aerodynamic nose, and so you've taken away that sort of blunt you know uh, obstruction, a, a drag obstruction. Um, but also, of course, there's way more torque in 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 the engine. So although, as I said, we we're right at gross weight. Uh, it performed, um, I would say, probably comparatively, to, it was the same as being in a very light uh, turbo beaver. So uh, amazing performance. And um, uh, I didn't get to really, um, that day, get to really, you know, sort of uh, uh, explore uh, too much of the performance factors because it was kind of all about getting around the circuit and getting back and, you know, with all these people lined up on the bank. You didn't want exactly. to give any any chances of anything going wrong, uh, or or sort of expose yourself to more chances of things going wrong. Um, so uh, so it was a brief flight, but uh, but nonetheless, um, I did you know I, I where I was where I thought I should lift off because it was all kind of choreographed as to where we thought we wanted to lift off uh, for you know the cameras and people to be able to see what was going on um, it was going to lift off way before that. So I actually had to pull power back to keep it on the water to, to lift off at the proper spot. Um, so, you know, uh, great performance, um, you know, with the caveat that it was at gross weight. Um, so, uh, since then, uh, one of my other, uh, actually our, our, uh, vice president of operations, who is also a very skilled, uh, uh test pilot. Has been um, doing the most of the flights, uh, you know. Since then, and um, uh, and I'm actually going to go back uh, to start flying some of the other flights that are with the new batteries and that because I want to get um, a sense of exactly what we can do with that in a sort of evolution of, of those batteries. So um, no, it was an exciting day. Um, you know, um, it it was. It was, uh, I guess, the, the moment when I kind of came back and, and went into the dock, and all these people were cheering and yelling, and and it was really quite, you know, uh, overwhelming in terms of of how much attention uh, was being paid to this on that day, and uh, uh, but gratifying too, you know, that okay, you know, we kind of made a bet here, and and people get it right, and uh, so so they they believe. That that what we're doing here is is real and has validity and and all of that. It's not just us dreaming about stuff. It's real, right? Yeah. So so that was that was uh, that was
1: important. You you had you had some naysayers. I was surprised at some of the aviation industry news as well, say, yeah. "Wow, this is just a you, you can't really do it." What oh yeah? What, what do you
0: say to those people who are like? Well, I enjoyed that, I, and and I have to tell you, you know, this are launching off into all these little stories, but. Um, uh, I was, um, uh, very honored to be inducted into the Canadian Aviation Hall of Fame. Um, and, and, and that was, you know, uh, all of, all of that process was post anything to do with electrifying aviation. So it was purely on the fact that we had built this airline and, you know, the safety culture and all, and all of those things. And so I was, you know, very, very honored I'm not normally a person that looks for spotlights and, um, but, but that was a great honor. And, um, and so there was an event, um, at the Bombardier hangar in, um, in, um, uh, Quebec. Uh, and, um, and they had a dinner, you know, like a big dinner with all of these, I think it was like, I don't know, 500 people there. It was, you know, black tie thing and bagpipers and all the, you know, whatever. And, um, and so at that dinner, there was all of these, uh, I would call it pretty traditional aviation aristocracy of Canada. I don't know what how to term it, but, <laughs> right. you know, pretty... The who's who of yeah, aviation. Yeah, yeah. so there was a lot of transport. Canada people, there was politicians, there was, you know, um, Bombardier execs, there was Pratt & Whitney execs, there was, you know, there was, there was kind of the... Yeah, the establishment of the of the, uh, of the the aviation um, community. Uh, and most of them, you know, not a lot of young people, actually. There was a lot of older people. And there was a lot of military there as well. So, uh, you know, we had to make an acceptance speech. I think it was you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes or something that each of us had to do. And, and Barry LaPointe, my, my good friend and mentor, Barry from uh, Kelowna Flightcraft, was being honored at the same time, which made it a lot more, more fun but um, uh, anyways uh, so I got up in front of this audience and I'm looking out at this sea of you know gray hair and um, uh, well I shouldn't say that there was, there was young people there too but uh, but anyways a very sort of you know staid um, audience and basically the, um, the, this, the speech I made was you know thank you very much for this amazing honor however um, it, 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 you know I didn't say it's premature, but I said, I think my contribution to, to aviation in, in Canada and you know, possibly the, the, the world in, in terms of, of is yet to come because I'm, I'm doing this electrification project. And so I sort of briefly, you know, kind of, and I, and I remember looking out at these people and they just kind of looked at me like, what the hell is he talking about? Like, I even heard some harrumphing. <laughs> you know, like, from the back of the room or whatever so from um, the
1: brand new guy probably yeah
0: well interesting I'll <laughs> an interesting story about that but um so after the after the uh you know the, the event was as it was breaking up these people came up to me and and there was sort of this steady succession of people congratulating me but some of them were saying you know good luck with that kind of thing and and I you know like I'm the kind of person that that I don't take that as 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 being uh, in any way, you know, kind of negative. I think it's I think it makes it a lot more interesting um, that you know you have you have something to prove and and the fact that you know I, I totally believe in what it is we're doing and so it's kind of like well we'll see about that kind of thing right so. Um, So, so that, that, that was, that was interesting, but the Pratt and Whitney guys came up and said, would you, you know, could you guys come to the factory tomorrow, you and your executive, whoever wants to come. And we'd like to have a little session in the boardroom with you and, you know, talk about what's going on and you know, what you're doing and whatever. I said, sure. So we did that the next day and that was pretty interesting because it was all about, well, you know, they, they had their engineering guys there and whatever and then and, and they asked a lot of questions and um and i thought you know here's this rinky dink little airline and you know in the grand scheme of things how many of the uh, pt6s do we have well you know we have a few but um but why would they even really be concerned about this but they saw the fact that they should be and and they should be you know and and so uh, you know they asked a lot of questions at the end of the day they i said well so what are you guys doing about this? And I said, well, you know, we have we have this hybrid program and different things that we still on the board, you know, on the boards, but it's not. We're trying to get it going, whatever. But you know, GE, Rolls Royce, um, you know, Airbus, uh, I mean, name them. They're all
1: yeah. heavily. Involved well, they have, they have to be, don't they? Yeah, they have to be.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, naysayers, absolutely, uh, and 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 um, and you know, bring it on.
1: Um, it, it was. I think it was the surprising thing to me was saying, "Well, the battery technology is not there. They can't. True. They can't do this." And yeah, but true. it's proving a point, right? Yeah. Is that obviously that's why you kind of did it? Was just like, let's prove this technology. See if we can. Yeah, do but, it. but but the
0: battery technology is, as we speak, is evolving amazingly. I mean, this new deal that we're doing with this with this battery company has a, it's a it's a chemical change in in a lithium battery. That basically does two things: it changes the, the energy density to double, but at the same time it deals with all of the uh, volatility uh, in in the charging and and uh, you know the the issues with, with uh, the combustion and all that. So um, so it's a game changer right there. But but we're only a, you know a few months from the from the initial flight. And already there's there's game-changing technology. And, and, and we know that that's happening in fuel cells and everything else. I mean, people are toiling away in all these different laboratories all over the world. And and there's, you know, test flights being done. I'm, I read about one in Europe the other day over the fuel cell. And
1: and, uh, and so it's, it's just happening, right? And so, you, yeah, you mentioned, um, like, we, we focus on the plane's ability to hold the batteries and power it. But I guess I'm, there's probably a challenge on some of the islands, like building charging stations and getting power to those too. Is that totally. something you're working yeah. on? Yeah, we're working with BC Hydro on
0: that. And, um, you know, the charging infrastructure is an issue. Um, there are workarounds. Uh, we, we can't, um, you know, we, we, we can't uh, change the batteries per se, um, you know, probably in, and certainly in the, in the, in the um, a Beaver or, you know, we're, we're still sort of baiting caravan and, and, and turbine otter, but um, uh, swapping out batteries is difficult uh, because they're, you know, they have to be pretty much built into the airframe. Uh, but what you can do, and one of the, one of the things about lithium is that uh, as long as you can control the heat, you can pretty much put amperage in like, like it's as big as your fire hose is, as big as your hose is in terms of amperage you can you can bombard that battery with amperage. That's how this how the superchargers work for Tesla, right? They up the amperage and, and yeah. crank it in, and they control the heat, so they can they can basically you know like they can triple the the, the charging efficiency. So so that's that's the same for for the aircraft. Um, and and so the the, the the trick is to get that amperage down to a point where you can charge the aircraft. Um, however if you can't do that, you can charge another fuel cell and then and then or battery bank and then transfer that energy from that battery bank into the one on board one. So you effectively um you know, you have like a and then and then you take that battery bank and charge it while the aircraft's out flying and then, you know, because it's
1: presumably doing a, a round trip. Or so you could have almost like a almost like a fuel tank. at Yeah, exactly. At, at each spot. Exactly.
0: So so for more remote locations or locations where you don't yet have the infrastructure, you can do it that way.
1: You can have like um, a, a rescue plane with one in it yeah, to go yeah. if you have to ult- go to an alternate or something. Yeah, yeah. So so that's um, that's just kind of one example
0: of, of what you can do. But um, I, I think that there's certainly realization uh, by you know BC Hydro even has a department look you know sort of working with this. Uh, that that this whole electrification thing of transportation is a big deal and aviation is one aspect of it So how does their grid handle it and how do you get the how do you get the amperage, right? And the other thing to note about BC in particular is that um, That all of our energy comes from from hydro from from you know dams and water and and so, you know there is no no coal being burnt or or uh, you know uh, carbon producing um, uh, fuel for that so it truly really is clean
1: power. Yeah, that puts your airline in a unique position yeah. for sure.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. If it suddenly scaled up globally, I think we'd be. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, there'd be a lot of dirty yeah. power yeah. creating clean. It's power. an issue, yeah. but it's an offset too.
0: Yeah, you know, between the combustion engine and, and, and the electrification. So,
1: um, does the noise footprint change with the uh, electric? Because the prop is where most noise comes from. Right?
0: Well, on takeoff, um, yeah. uh, so that a certain. Percentage of the noise is um, it comes from the from the propeller uh, and the supersonic sort of tip speed. So there is a there's a percentage of that noise, but there's also uh, due to the torque of of the electric motor. It now um, it now sort of leads you into propeller designs that are different and and probably don't have to go supersonic like that. So it can reduce that part. But the actual noise in flight is pretty much nothing it's no. it's wind noise and so and and a bit of propeller noise but but you know the cruising sort of aspect of which you know some people take issue with with planes flying over their head um is it's down to to you know um, um incrementally like you know probably 20 percent of what you would have um normally so, so there's a big reduction there. And, of course, inside the aircraft, it's a lot quieter. Uh, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot quieter, for sure.
1: And so where – you're not even a year from first flight. Um, what's, what's the future, a couple years, hold, and where do you see electric really coming into play for your airline? So, um, yeah, as we've kind of already covered, I, I think
0: um, uh, the – the actual regulatory process uh, is the major uncharted territory here. and um, and uh, although there is a uh, certainly a collective sort of willingness to to get this done, you know politically and 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 sort of you know uh, uh, bureaucracy wise and and you know people that that are very positive about, about getting this done. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is there are, you know, there are goalposts along the way and, and not the least of which is, is proving the, the safety of all of this. And, um, uh, and so, you know, that, that is a bit of a, um, I, I wouldn't say that the, you know, that it's, that it's something without, uh, that it's infinite but it's not but but we we don't know exactly you know what sort of what sort of um uh you know how much does the do the goalposts get moved down the field as we go along and and so so the technology
1: uh, could move faster than the regulations yeah, (laughs) yeah
0: yeah so uh so you know that 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 really is the bet and and i think that uh that even you know we, we keep talking about a two year process. Uh, so you know when I when I say two years and I, uh, our engineers kind of look at me and kind of go, yeah, that's kind of a best case scenario. Um, but but they don't know either because because you know they, they they certainly know that the technology can be proven, but they don't know what the what the sort of process is gonna be because there is no process. I mean basically we're we're operating under the STC process. So standard type certificate. And and so because there really isn't any any design process for this, um, because it's so different. But that's the closest thing that that they have and and so um, so that that's fine. There is a process, but but the process will be altered in terms of of what are the what are the what are the the goalpost parameters on the on, on, on the way along, um, so uh, so we don't so we don't know exactly how long that process will be, but we do know that the technology continues to evolve, and there are others. We're not the only people working on this, so there are others in the process in different ways, and a lot of it is from you know clean sheet aircraft and, and whatever, um, but uh, but um, but there are a lot of people you know, moving in the same direction. And the FAA actually has a, has, um, is, 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 quite out far out in front regulatory wise in terms of identifying a a specific process for, for electrification of aviation. And they have a whole group working on it. Uh, so, you know, there is bilateral too, right? So, uh, we can kind of, you know, piggyback off of what's going on in the FAA, but, um, you know, as a Canadian um, uh, airline, and and you know, very proud of the Canadian heritage uh, in development of aerospace, we we'd like to like it to remain sort of the, you know purely Canadian initiative in terms of getting this first kind of paying customer in a in an electric aircraft
1: because we think that's achievable. Yeah. So they like sort of five years, maybe.
0: Like yeah, I, I it, you know, and and people always say, well, you you know, your goal is to electrify your whole fleet. Well, yeah, ultimately, but the reality of that is is, is based on 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 um, on the technology and how quickly it develops. Because uh, right now, we can see that if, as I said before, if we were sort of granted the the uh, um, the ability to. To carry paying passengers tomorrow, we could do it, um, but they would be, you know, uh, short stage lengths and and light loads. Uh, but um, you know, you can still you can still do something with that. Uh, but to evolve our whole fleet, to you know, our longest scheduled destination is is Seattle. Hopefully, we can fly again soon. Um, and and you know for the energy sort of density to come up to be able to do that, um, it may be a ways off. So the fleet will evolve with the technology in terms of that. But but our goal would be, you know, certainly to become completely electric at some point. Um, so that's you know that, that's certainly the goal, and and we'll just keep working towards it.
1: I hope you enjoyed that discussion with Greg, and I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what happens with electric aircraft in the coming years. Nothing will replace the sound of an inertia starter spooling up on a radial Pratt and Whitney, but there are exciting times ahead, nonetheless. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Flying British Columbia, and you can find past episodes, videos, and ways to support the show at flyingbc.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the air.